Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for your word, and I thank you for how you speak to us through your word. Lord, I ask this morning that you will open our, uh, open our minds and open our hearts so that you can speak clearly to us and we can understand what it is that you are saying to us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So as I said last week, we're doing a short summer sermon, or summer, summer, hmm, summer sermon series uh, in Zephaniah. We'll spend eight weeks in this little book. Um, this is Zephaniah, a call to repentance. So again, last week I talked about, well, where in the Bible is Zephaniah? So if you go to the New Testament and you go to Matthew, if you, and you just go back a few pages, you'll go through a couple of really short books and you'll get to Zephaniah. Now, last week, again, I said throughout this whole book of Zephaniah, he has two recurring themes. The first is that Zephaniah shows God's judgment to all people, Israelites and pagan, if they fail to keep him as their only God. And that's going to be the focus of this message today. The other recurring theme that we see in the book of Zephaniah is that God also reveals his patience, graciousness, and his call to repentance. Those who repent and humbly call on the Lord will be restored instead of judged. So this morning, we're going to be in, there we go, we're going to be in chapter, uh, chapter 1, verses 2 to 13, and this is God's judgment against Judah, and apparently I forgot to update my, uh, my slide there, but the main point is God's judgment against Judah, and we see that working out in three different ways. That's God punishes unfaithfulness, God has prepared a sacrifice, and God's justice is sure. Again, that's God punishes unfaithfulness, God has prepared a sacrifice, and God's justice is sure. And real quick, before we get into that, I want to check, James, is the recording looking okay? All right, because last week, the podcast, uh, the recording didn't work out right, so I just wanted to check on that. Um, So we'll go ahead and get right into that. So starting in verse 2, God says, I will completely sweep away everything from the face of the earth. This is the Lord's declaration. I will sweep away people and animals. I will sweep away the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea and the ruins along with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth. This is the Lord's declaration. So in this section, we see an announcement of worldwide destruction. It's such a pleasant verse. not, Not very much. It's not very pleasant. We see a message of worldwide destruction. So a question that comes up, a question that you might be thinking is, why does God's wrath impact non-humans? If God's wrath is directed against sin and sin is a human tendency, it's a part of our human condition, part of our fallen human condition, why is God's wrath against sin directed against non-human parts of creation? So God's wrath, the answer to that is that God's wrath goes out to all parts of creation because all of creation is stained by our sin. And we see that in Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 20, it says, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in the hope that the creation itself would be set free from the bondage to decay into the glorious freedom of God's children. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now. So what this is saying, what Paul is telling us in this passage in Romans, is that creation is fallen because of our sin. And God's wrath goes out against creation so that it can be restored again. If we keep reading, we'll see that God's judgment, we'll see God's judgment against Judah. So picking up in verse four, it says, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the residents of Jerusalem. 
I will cut off every vestige of Baal from this place, the names of the pagan priests, along with the priests, those who bow and worship on the rooftops to the stars of the sky, those who bow and pledge loyalty to the Lord, but also pledge loyalty to Milcom, and those who turn back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. Now, real quick, you might think as you're looking at this, you might think that some of those um, where the, 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 the line is broken, it seems a little weird. It doesn't flow very well. Well, part of that is because this was written in poem and, and poetry. And that poetry, the, the form of the poetry does not translate well from Hebrew to English. And so those sentences where they, they're kind of broken there, it seems a little weird. Uh, that's because the, the poetry is not translating well. But we still understand the message. But we look here and we see that God is uh, pronouncing a judgment against Judah and Jerusalem. So this is talking about the southern kingdom. Now, after Solomon's death, if you recall your, um, your Israelite history, we'll go back to Israel history class. So if you recall your history of the nation of Israel, Saul was the king. Uh, he was the first king of Israel. And then after Saul, we had David and then David's son, Solomon. Now, after Solomon died, the kingdom was split into two parts. You had the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom was known as Israel, and the southern kingdom was known as Judah. Now, as we read through the books of kings in 2 Chronicles, we read that Israel's kings, so the northern kingdom, their kings were overwhelmingly open to idolatry and syncretism. They're typically described as doing what was evil in the Lord's sight. So let's talk about those two words real quick, idolatry and syncretism. Idolatry is worshiping anything other than God. And then syncretism is where you try to take another belief system, another belief system or another religion or another form of worship and try to mix it in with a different religion. So you're mixing religions. That's what syncretism is. So the northern kingdom was pub, uh, punished for this by being defeated by the Assyrians and the northern kingdom was sent into exile. So that left the southern kingdom, also known as Judah. So the southern kingdom. Again, we look at uh, Kings and Second Chronicles, and we see that several of Judah's kings are also described as doing evil in the sight of the Lord. However, they also had several other kings who were described as doing what was right in the sight of the Lord. For this reason, Judah was allowed to continue on a little bit longer. Is during this period... So after the fall of the northern kingdom, while the southern kingdom is still in existence, it's during this period that Zephaniah is prophesying. Uh, God not only calls out against Judah, but also specifically Jerusalem. Now Jerusalem was the capital city of Judah. So as the capital city, it was the political center of the nation, of the kingdom. It was also where the temple was. And so not only was it the political center, it was also the religious center of Judah. And God calls out Jerusalem because it was using its influence instead of pushing the people toward God. They were influencing the people away from God. So let's look at the sins that God is calling them out on. First, we see idolatry. Right? In idolatry, we see there he's talking about Baal, or a, a better pronunciation would be Baal. But as you know, that southern drawl makes that really hard to say. So we just call it Baal. Um, and Baal is a Canaanite god. He also calls out against the pagan priests and worshiping the stars or astrology. And second, we see syncretism. So syncretism in verse four, God announces judgment on the names of the pagan priests along with the priests. So this seems like 
we had the priests who were helping in the worship of Yahweh and the priests for the pagan gods working together in the same space and, and kind of helping each other out. That doesn't quite seem right. Another more clear sign of syncretism is in verse 5. He says, those who bow and pledge loyalty to the Lord, but also pledge loyalty to Milcom. Milcom was an Ammonite god. So the people here are trying to worship God along with other false gods. And they had somehow managed to try to blend the two faiths together. Now those first two sins are the same sins that the northern kingdom was punished for, idolatry and syncretism. But the southern kingdom doesn't stop there. The third and final sin we see in verse 6. <clears throat> it says, uh, And those who turn back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of Him. So the third sin that the southern kingdom is guilty of is, uh, is called apostasy. Now apostasy is simply turning away from the faith, turning, turning away from God. So idolatry, syncretism, and apostasy. These three sins are what the southern kingdom is punished for. And these three sins are still very common today. Now last week I talked a lot about idolatry. Now idolatry, uh, like I said, I talked about it last week, so I'm not going to get into too much detail now. Um, but what we see idolatry in nowadays is typically when we're, when we're talking about sex or money or power or comfort or even family or church. It's when we allow these things to become more important than God. Now, these are good things. Money isn't a necessary part of being in society. Sex is a great gift from God that he's given us to, and to exercise within his will. Right? Church is a good thing. Family is a good thing. But when we allow these things to take precedence over God, they become an idol. Now, syncretism. Syncretism still happens quite a bit today. I've heard people who claim to be Christians, and they say things like, well, there's just so much similarity between the major world religions that maybe they're all right. Maybe we all worship the same God, but we just call him a different name, right? Kind of going back to Shakespeare, a rose by any other name would still be a rose. But that's not true. As we read in the Bible, Jesus says that I am the only way to heaven. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father but through me. Jesus is the only true salvation. When we try to mix Christianity with other religions, that's not being, that, that, that's not um, productive. That, that actually turns away from God. And this is what caused the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom to both be punished. So another example of syncretism, going back to astrology, right? Astrology is still popular today. Now, a lot of people don't take it super seriously, but they'll still look in the newspaper and read their horoscope. Or you see on Facebook sometimes uh, about the different personalities of the different signs. And, you know, maybe you're an Aquarius or a Pisces or whatever. That's astrology. Now, there's a difference between astrology and astronomy. Right? Astrology is worshiping the stars. Astronomy is studying the stars in space. Now, astronomy is good. Astrology is evil. Another example of syncretism would be how so many of the major liberal denominations are willing to roll over on scriptural truth in favor of the sexual revolution and how they're willing to kind of deny the truth in scripture in favor of what's popular in our society nowadays. Finally, apostasy. Apostasy has been a major concern for the church for quite some time. Now, the majority of my generation Several of us grew up in church, 
I went to church a lot growing up. But most of the people in my generation, when they go off to college, they go off from the church as well. And come back from college and they don't come back to the church. That's very common in my generation. My generation is very guilty of apostasy. It's not just my generation, though. For several generations, the church has been losing ground in our, in our, uh, uh, in our population. The most common, the, most, or the quickest growing group or religious identifier on surveys nowadays, the fastest growing religious identifier on surveys would be the category none. So when they talk about, uh, when people who, who study the surveys or the statisticians as they're looking at the different surveys, they've created a new category of people called the nuns. Not N-U-N-S, but N-O-N-E-S. These are people who identify with no religious affiliation. That's the fastest growing statistical group in our nation. But before we move on, we have to talk about something called telescoping. All right. Telescoping is where a writer compresses time between events to where there seems to be little or no distinction or little to no time separating these events. When in fact, there might be several years, generations, or even millennia separating them. Understanding telescoping is important when we're looking in Old Testament prophecy and even into some New Testament prophecy. Because what happens as the prophet is given this vision from God and he sees the future, given his perspective, these events may seem to be, very quick, to be in very quick succession or even simultaneous. You can think of it as three mountain peaks in the distance. And as you're looking at the mountains from a distance, those peaks can seem to be right up on top of each other or almost no distance between them. But as you get up closer to the mountains or even in between the mountains, you can see the valleys in between them. You can see the distance between the mountains. Now, prophets have that same thing when they're looking in, into the future, when they're given this vision from God to see events in the future. It's hard for them to see the time in between them. Now, for example, this is why when we look at verses 2 and 3, we see God's declaration of destruction against all of creation. And then verses 4 to 6, where we're talking about the destruction of the southern kingdom. When we read them back to back, it seems like one major event. But now we know that the southern kingdom was defeated by the Babylonians 597 years before Jesus was born. We also know in John's revelation of the end times that God will destroy the world and there will be a new heaven and a new earth. Now we're well over 2,000 years from the first event, still waiting for the second event. Now this is telescoping, where we see this distance between them, but the prophet looking from history because of his perspective can't see the distance between them. All right, let's keep reading. We're starting in verse 7. It says, Be silent in the presence of the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. Indeed, the Lord has prepared his sacrifice. He has consecrated his guests. On the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officials, the king's sons, and all who are dressed in foreign clothing. On that day, I will punish all who skip over the threshold, who fill their master's house with violence and deceit. So the officials, we have the political leaders. These are the, the king's sons and those who have rejected their identity as the sons of Israel and those who are known for violence and deceit. They will be punished on the day of the Lord's sacrifice. Now, there's another phrase here 
that it could be really easy to skip over and not think a whole lot about. And speaking of skipping over, that's what that phrase is. It talks about all who skip over the threshold. It would be really easy to look over that and not think a whole lot about it. But if we stop and pause a minute, we'll read that phrase, those who skip over the threshold, and we say, what in the world is he talking about? To find the answer to that, we look back in 1 Samuel chapter 5, and this is verses 1 through 5. So 1 Samuel 5, it says, After the Philistines had captured the Ark of God, they took it from Ebenezer to Ashdod, brought it to the temple of Dagon, and placed it next to his statue. When the people of Ashdod got up early the next morning, there was Dagon, fallen with his face to the ground before the Ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and returned him to his place. But when they got up early the next morning, there was Dagon, fallen with his face to the ground before the Ark of the Lord. This time, Dagon's head... Uh, Dagon's head and both his hands were broken off and lying on the threshold. Only Dagon's torso remained. That is why, still today, the priests of Dagon and everyone who enters the temple of Dagon in Ashdod do not step on Dagon's threshold. So when we're talking in Zephaniah, when he says those who skip over the threshold, this is a, um, a superstitious practice that goes back to worshiping this pagan god. So we have more evidence of syncretism. They're taking different bits and pieces from different religions and different belief systems and incorporating them into their worship. Now, Zephaniah says that God has consecrated his guests. To consecrate means to set aside or to dedicate. So Zephaniah is saying that these people, these political rulers, the king's sons, those who are dressed in foreign clothing, which could be metaphor for people who are acting not like God's people, but acting in, in ways that um, are acting in, in, in worship for other gods. So they're, they're letting those beliefs influence their lifestyle. That could be metaphorical. It could also be literal, where they're rejecting their identity as the people of God and taking on a different identity. So it's these people who God has set aside for his sacrifice. These people are going to the people who, sacri- who God sacrifices to save the nation of or the, the southern kingdom. We see, it says, the Lord has prepared a sacrifice. Sin must always be paid for with death, with death. This is why sacrifice is necessary. When we read back all the way in Genesis chapter 3 with the first sin, even with the, the first sin, God sacrificed an animal to cover Adam and Eve's guilt. He made loincloth out of their skins, out of the, the animal skins. So all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, we see sacrifice as a result of sin. So sin must always be paid for with blood. This is why we read about all of the sacrifices that the Israelites needed to make in the Old Testament. But wait a second. We still sin today. I still sin frequently, unfortunately. We still sin today, but we don't still sacrifice animals for those sins. We don't still, you know, spill blood in the temple for these sins that we have. This is because Jesus' sacrifice. Jesus' sacrifice is the ultimate sacrifice that the Lord has prepared. This picture here that we see is foreshadowing for Jesus' sacrifice. However, in this case, God is sacrificing a sinful group. In Jesus' case, he was the perfect, blameless, sinless Lamb of God. See, Jesus came and he gave his life so that he could pay the penalty for our sins and restore our relationship with God. 
When Zephaniah says that God has consecrated his guests, again, consecrate means to be set aside through faith in Jesus' sacrifice. We can be consecrated from the sacrifice instead of consecrated as the sacrifice. We can be set apart from the destruction that's promised in Revelation. Let's keep reading. In verse 10, it says, On that day, this is the Lord's declaration, there will be an outcry from the fish gate, a wailing from the second district, and a loud crashing from the hills. Wail, you residents of the hollow, for all the merchants will be silenced, and all those loaded with silver will be cut off. All right, well, he's talking about the fish gate and the second district. These are both northern parts of the city of Jerusalem. So the fish gate got its name because at this northern entrance to the city, there was a fish market. And then the second district was a newer portion of the city, and it was on the northern side of the city. What's interesting about this is that when King Nebuchadnezzar of the Babylonians comes in and destroys Jerusalem, he breaks through the northern side of the wall. God is prophesying, or Zephaniah is prophesying through God here that it's going to be through the northern side of the city that this city will be punished. We know that God's judgment, that God's justice is sure partially because of this. When God says something's going to happen, we can know that it's going to happen even down to the finer details as to what part of the city it's going to be overcome through. Now, when they talk about the hills, sorry, when it talks about the hills, right, this refers to Mount Zion, Mount Moriah, and the Mount of Olives. These would cover the rest of the city of Jerusalem. Mount Zion was on the southwestern side. Uh, Mount Moriah was in the central part of the city. And the Mount of Olives was on the east side. So God is warning them that Nebuchadnezzar is going to bust through the northern side of the city and then come through and destroy the rest of the city as well. That punishment is going to be total and complete. And speaking of that total and complete punishment, if we keep reading, it says, And at that time I will search Jerusalem with lamps and punish those who, live, who settle down comfortably and who say to themselves, The Lord will not do good or evil. Their wealth will become plunder and their houses a ruin. They will build houses but never live in them, plant vineyards but never drink their wine. So here, God says that he will search Jerusalem with lamps. So this is indicating a very careful and thorough search. A very careful and thorough search. Now we look at you know, the lamps that they had in the Old Testament times, or even in New Testament times, they weren't very powerful. They were very weak lamps. You know, nowadays we carry little flashlights. It's just, this flashlight just carries two AAA batteries and I can get almost 300 lumens out of it. And that's much more than any lamp that they would have had in the Old Testament. Um, I, one of the, the companies that I, I really like, it's a flashlight company called Olight. They released a new product this week. I can't remember what the name of it is, but it's just ridiculous flashlights, 25,000 lumens. And I watched a video on it and the guy was, when he turned it on, like, He's st- sitting there in the studio, and he's got studio lights on his face. And when he turns the flashlight on, you see him go, oh, that's really bright. He said, it's like somebody just turned on the sun. So they take it out, of course, as any good flashlight reviewer would do. They go out at nighttime, and they're shining it at the trees in the distance. And the whole time throughout this whole video, the guy's just laughing because the flashlight is ridiculous. It's over the top in every way. It's so big and heavy that it, they ship it with a shoulder strap. What kind of flashlight is that, right? It's like a spotlight. It's very powerful. But when we think about that, and we think about how that might be actually used, right? A a flashlight that bright, I couldn't see any practical use for me owning one. I don't know. I could, well, 
other than the price, I could just go buy one. They're, they're a little expensive. But anybody can go buy one. But what practical, practical purpose would it serve? Eh, I don't know. The only practical purpose that I can think of would be maybe police or fire department when they're searching through the woods or doing a missing person search. That would really be the only practical purpose that I could see for it. But again, we're talking about a searchlight. And here, God says that he will search Jerusalem with lamps. Now, those lamps that they had were very weak. We have much more powerful lights nowadays, but those lights still pale in comparison to what God can see, the knowledge that God has. There is no hiding from him. When he says he will search Jerusalem with lamps, they're saying there is no way to hide from him. We can know that God's justice is sure because there is nowhere to hide from him. There will be nobody who escapes it. When we look at those who are being identified now, though, it's not the same group that was identified earlier. It says that he will punish those who settle down comfortably and say to themselves, the Lord will not do good or evil. So these people who are not acting, or they're not actively worshiping God, or any other deity for that matter, but they've just kind of stepped back and, and, and they're not pursuing any religion. These would be the people who I talked about earlier, the nuns, right? If we think of this in purely human terms, these people wouldn't seem to be enemies or allies. They're just more neutral. They're not actively fighting against God, but they're, not, they're also not dedicated to worshiping Him. They're focused on their comfort and their wealth and their accomplishments. Now, this part seems to apply most directly to our culture nowadays. There are many in our country who would say that worshiping God and believing in the Bible is fine, but just maybe not for me. You, know, you can do it if you want to, but it's not for me. You know, or others who say that they believe in God, but when we see the example that's set by their life, they're more worried about their comfort and their wealth than actually doing what God says and actually following God's word. See, most people in our culture, most people in our country are not actively worshiping another deity or following another religion. They're just kind of sitting back and being identified as a nun, no religious identity. See, God's punishment goes out to, or God's, pun, yeah, sorry, God's punishment goes out to all who are not covered by the blood of Jesus. Faith in Jesus' sacrifice, leading to an indwelling of the Holy Spirit and evidenced by a changed life. This is how our relationship with God is restored and how we can avoid the same outcome as Judah. When we look at those people who are more, more focused on their comfort and their wealth, when you say, well, you know, they're, they're good people. They're not evil. They're good people. But when we look at Scripture, we know that there's not good people. We are all sinful. We are all inclined toward evil. And without the faith in Jesus' sacrifice, without being covered by His blood, then we are an enemy of God. And your relationship with Him can be restored through faith in Jesus. So we get to our application point. Uh, and our first application point under knowing is to know that God punishes unfaithfulness. Wednesday night in our Bible study, we were talking about, uh, we're going through the book of James. And in the, at the beginning of chapter four, James is talking about these people who are fighting amongst themselves and they're, they're struggling with pride and selfishness. And then the next sentence, he says, you adulterous people, 
And we say, wait a second, he's talking about selfishness, he's talking about pride, he's talking about fighting amongst themselves and judging each other. Nothing about that talks about adultery. But when we think about it, and we think about God's relationship with us and how God loves us and how God wants our only or wants to be our only God. When we put ourselves on a pedestal, when we start to elevate ourselves to that, that, uh, that place of worship, then we are being adulterous toward God. We're being adulterous toward his love for us. Now, I had a, a pastor friend of mine who, he was from South Carolina, and he had a very thick southern draw. And when he said idolatry and adultery, you couldn't really tell a difference at all. And when his wife called him out on it, because she was from, I don't know, somewhere else, and she didn't have that thick southern accent, when she called him out on it, he said, well, it doesn't matter. They're pretty much the same thing anyway. Well, and he's right. Idolatry is adultery toward God. And when we see here, we know that God punishes that unfaithfulness. The second part of our application is to be transformed by our faith, to be transformed by our faith in Jesus. According to the Bible, it says, all who call in the name of Jesus will be saved. Saved from that destruction, saved from our slavery to sin. Once you are saved, the Holy Spirit comes in and to live inside of you and begins to sanctify you. That sanctify means to live more like Jesus, to do away with the sin within us. So the Holy Spirit comes in and begins to sanctify us. And it is through the Holy Spirit that Christians have the power to turn away from sin and to live a life that reflects God's glory to our community. And it is only through faith in Jesus that we can overcome idolatry, syncretism, and apostasy. Our final application point is doing. And that doing is to share this message, just like Zephaniah did, as a prophet to the, city of, uh, to the nation of Judah. We are to take God's message of punishment and repentance, God's call to repentance and his message of salvation. We take that to our community and share God's love with them. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, again, Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the truth that it has for us. Father, I pray this morning that with this message that you will change our hearts, that you will help us to attack the idols in our lives and to tear them down as King Josiah did in the Old Testament. Lord, I pray that you will help us to seek out those areas of syncretism in our life and destroy them so that we can worship you and worship you alone. Father, I pray that you will help us to, to do away with any apostasy that we may have and turn back towards you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So we've come to our point of response, and you can respond right where you're seated and pray. You can come to the front, pray at the, the cross, or you can pray with me. But please do not ignore the calling of the Holy Spirit this morning.